Good evening. Great to see you. If you're watching online, good evening to you. Some people hate Christmas. Do you know anyone like that? A friend of mine was driving around Christmas time up near Thomas Street. He stopped at the lights. A guy jumps out and starts to clean his windscreen. Now, my mate thought that his windscreen was already pretty clean, but this guy had decided, no, it wasn't, and it needed a clean. And as he was cleaning my mate's windscreen, he was singing a Christmas carol. Oh, come, let us ignore him. Right? Instead of, oh, come, let us adore him, he was singing, oh, come, let us ignore him. Well, he finished cleaning the windscreen, uh, and he held his hand out for some money. And my friend looked at him and said, Oh, come, let us ignore him, and drove off without giving him any money. Now, it's not really much of a Christmas spirit, is it? Do you know anyone who hates Christmas? There's a guy who hated Christmas so much, he would take a week of holidays off, the week before Christmas, he would take the week off holidays, tell everyone at work that he was, got, had gone away, and so he couldn't attend any of the Christmas functions, but really, he was just at home, having an undisturbed, grinchy Christmas. Well, today I want to talk about someone who hated Christmas. This guy hated Christmas more than the real Grinch. I think we've got a picture, right? Who tried to steal Christmas. The guy I want to talk about today hated Christmas more than Ebenezer Scrooge, who we know despised Christmas. The guy that I want to talk about today hated Christmas more than Scrooge and the Grinch combined. And he not only wanted to steal Christmas, he wanted to kill Christmas. He wanted to kill the first Christmas before Christmas was even Christmas. He tried to kill the baby Jesus. He tried to kill King Jesus while he was in the manger. Now, you're not going to see any Christmas cards with this scene on it. And you won't see this scene in the kids' nativity play, I hope. The man's name was King Herod. And today, the spirit of Herod lives on. 2,000 years after Herod, the spirit of Herod lives on. There are people today who are offended by Jesus, even by the mere mention of his name. There are those who want to erase every trace of Christmas from public life. And across the globe, this Christmas, there will be people who will be persecuting Christians and killing Christians. Why does the spirit of Herod live on 2,000 years later? Because the question that we heard in our Bible reading this evening, where is the true king? See, that is the most disturbing question to the human heart. The meaning of Christmas is that Jesus is the saviour of the world and he is the king of the world. And if he's the king of the world, that means he's king over every person 
on the planet and that triggers deep resistance within people's hearts. Inside every person, there's a little Herod who wants to rule. How is this true of you? And how does God deal with the Herods of our world? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Before we do that, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for two things. We're going to pray for our Christianity Explored course, which we've just finished last week. Uh, and I just want to thank all those that were involved with that, those who catered. I have sent you a message, but I also want to say publicly thank you for those who have catered. Uh, we've seen people become Christian during our course. We've seen people come now to church because of the course and people inviting. So thank you for that. We're going to pray for them in a moment. We're also going to pray for our Christmas services and I'm going to pray for our, the, the Ukrainian uh, relief appeal. So why don't you join me as we pray for these things. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas and the message of salvation that we can involve ourselves in this month of December. Thank you for that Christmas message for salvation at Christmas. And we thank you, Lord, for the recent Christianity Explored course. I thank you for all those that helped, the caterers, the evangelists, the organisers, the teachers. And we thank you that we saw people come to know you and come to join our church. And I pray, Lord, that you keep working in, their, in the hearts of those who came and that you keep drawing them to yourself. Those, Lord, that came but yet haven't made a decision to follow you, I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to draw them near to you and they would make that commitment. I pray, Lord, for this month of December and for our Christmas services. I do pray, Father, that we might be able to be sharing the hope of Christmas to those around us that don't have that same hope. I pray, Lord, for our Christmas services that you might bless them, that we might have lots and lots of visitors that might come to hear the saving message of Christmas. And Father, we do pray for the International Church of Bucharest. We thank you for Nicole Cooper and the team there, Pastor Tilly and Natty, and I just ask, Lord, that their endeavours might show the love of Christ to many and as people experience the love of Christ they might be drawn to Christ and they might find new life and so in this terrible situation in the Ukraine you might bring good out of it and we know Lord that you love to do that to bring good out of bad and so Lord we ask that you would do that please be with us this evening as we look at this passage together please Lord, Lord stir our hearts in Jesus name Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read the second part of chapter 2 together. It should be on the screen behind me. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized 
that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Please be seated. We're just going to watch a brief video for the next minute or so. Ancient world. A powerful king, he ruled the land of Judea for over 30 years. His legacy includes fine architecture and impressive engineering. But it's the killing of the children that has earned Herod his reputation as a tyrant. Matthew explains in his gospel how the crime took place. Travelers from the east journeyed to King Herod's palace in Jerusalem. Matthew calls them wise men. They had seen a star, a sign that a new king of the Jews had been born. This news troubled Herod. He was king of the Jews. Herod's high priest warned him of a prophecy that a king would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Herod asked the wise men to return and tell him where the child was. Warned in a dream, the wise men secretly made their way home by a different route. When the wise men didn't return, Herod flew into an uncontrollable rage. According to the Bible, he had planned to kill Jesus and had failed. Herod ordered the killing of every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. there was at least one boy who escaped. Joseph and Mary had taken their son and fled to Egypt. The Christmas carol says that three kings came to Jesus. The Bible calls them magi. They were pagans involved in magic, sorcery, uh, even the occult. 
How many magi were there? We're not told. We, are, we assume there were three because they brought three gifts. Could have been four. One could have been really cheap, not brought a gift. We're not told. They came from the east, probably from the pagan nations of Arabia or Persia. And they traveled all the way across the desert to Jerusalem on camels. It would have taken weeks, perhaps months. Anyone been on a camel? Yeah? Is it comfortable? Are they fast? These guys came all the way from Persia to Jerusalem. Who would have, if, if the only mode of transport for you today were to come to church was a camel, would you have come? Right? These guys really believed something big was happening. The Magi brought into the court of King Herod. Herod was the family name for a dynasty of leaders that governed Israel around the time of Christ. Now, there are six Herods in the Bible, which is why it gets confusing. You think, gee, Herod's, Herod's everywhere, but there are six of them. And the Herod of the Christmas story is known as Herod the Great. Uh, it may have looked something like this. Herod the Great was appointed by the Romans to be ruler over Jerusalem, Judea, in order to pacify the Jews. The problem was, Herod was an Edomite, who were the ancestors of Esau. And the Edomites had been in conflict with the Jews ever since when? Esau and Jacob. And they hated each other. Despite this, the Roman Senate named Herod the king of the Jews. And how do you think that went down with the Jews? They regarded that as an incredible insult, and so they were never reconciled to Herod's rule, and so there was conflict. Now, Herod was a cruel and capricious king. Now, that is an understatement. He would brutally kill anyone who he thought was a threat to his hold on power. He had his own wife killed because he thought she might be a threat to his hold on power. He had his three eldest sons killed. Caesar Augustus, he, he, he even commented, this is what Caesar Augustus said, it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. Because he didn't eat pork, his pig was safer than his son. As Herod lay dying, he rounded up all the leading men of Israel and he, had, and he ordered that they would be killed when he died so that every family would be forced to mourn when he died. One ancient writer dubbed him the malevolent maniac. But the, bad, the Magi, they don't know any of this. They, they just come into the palace. And they ask Herod this in verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now how these sorcerers came to interpret a star as indicating the birth of the Messiah, we're not told. And it's intriguing that God would use a star to guide the Magi because in the Old Testament, God forbade his people to use astrology. Because astrology thumbs its nose at God. Because God guides us in his word, not through the stars. 
So it's intriguing that he would use that to bring them to Jesus. Now, Matthew's not saying, hey, astrology's okay. Now, you know, go check your star signs. No, the point is that God is a God of mercy. And he wants to draw people to himself. And he'll even draw pagans to himself through godless astrology. Because he's a God of mercy and he wants to save people. Now, when King Charles was born, was there a star that shone over his crib? No. When our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was born, was there a star that shone over his crib? No. This is no ordinary child. This child has cosmic significance. We read in verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was enraged. See, when you come into the palace and you ask the guy sitting on the throne, where is the true king? That's not going to go down too well, is it? Especially when it's someone like Herod. Herod recognizes that the birth of this child threatens his hold on power. King of the Jews, I'm the king of the Jews. And so he concocts a plan to eliminate this threat. See, he now knows the information that he needs. He knows where the child is born, Bethlehem. He now knows when the child was born, the approximate time from the Magi. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to eliminate this rival to my throne just as I've eliminated every other rival that's come before me. And so you see, you've got the king of the Edomites wanting to kill the king of Israel. That conflict continues. Just like the prophets had predicted would happen. And then we take up our story in verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Do you notice here that the word order, child and his mother, that's reversed from what we normally say, isn't it? We normally say mother and child. But it says child and his mother because it's, we're meant to, it, it highlights God's focus on protecting this child. That is what God is focused on. Protecting this child, he sovereignly acts to preserve his son, the hope of the world. So he got up, verse 14. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Remember in the Old Testament, the great rescue of God was to rescue his people, his son Israel, from Pharaoh's wrath. Now he rescues Jesus from Herod's wrath. Next verse. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod is enraged, and his paranoid megalomania leads him to do the unthinkable. He becomes the butcher of Bethlehem. This is an artist's impression of what it may have looked like, but the sheer terror of the mothers as these soldiers come in after their sons. 
Herod only knows the approximate time from the Magi. And so he decides, I'll have all the male infants born in that approximate time frame just to cover my bases and make sure I get Jesus. Historians estimate that Bethlehem had a population probably of about a thousand, uh, which means they probably had about 20 to 30 plus baby boys less than two, two and under. And he slaughters them all. To you and I, these, uh, these deaths are just horrific atrocities. We'll just get rid of that slide, thank you. To you and I, these deaths were a horrific atrocity. But to Herod, this was what was required to maintain power. For him, this is what was needed, I'll do it. We need to feel the weight of this event, don't we? Why didn't God save the other baby boys of Bethlehem? Have you ever thought that question to yourself? Why was Joseph the only father to get a warning from heaven? Surely if an angel had been sent to any of the other fathers and mothers, wouldn't they also have got up and taken their children and escaped? Why were they not given the same opportunity? Why did God allow these baby boys of Bethlehem to be butchered? It's a question that weighs heavily on me and my understanding of theology and of God. Have you thought that question to yourself before? Well, murder, bloodshed, tyranny, they are part of the human experience, aren't they? Right now. Ukraine, right now. There is great evil in our world and we have to label it as evil. Because that's what it is. Now when we ask people, where does evil come from? Many people say, well, it comes from outside of us. It's, it comes from the unjust structures in society. It's, it's the system. Some people say, well, evil comes just from a, a minority of evil, wicked people, not from hardworking, decent people like you and me. It comes from one group that oppresses the rest of us. You know, the ruling elite that oppresses the working class or uh, the rich and powerful like Herod or the patriarchy. That's who's to blame. And they say, if we can overthrow this power group and set the victimized free, then evil will be defeated and goodness will flourish. But we know this is demonstrably untrue in human history, don't we? Because whenever the old power group is removed, overthrown, the new power group turns out to be just as corrupt. And this is because the scriptures tell us that evil is not something outside of us. Evil is within every one of us. It runs through every human heart. And so there will come a day when God will rid the world of all evil, judgment day. But if he was to rid the world of all evil and sin before judgment day... He would have to rid the world of everyone. And so God is patient and he's kind and he's delaying the final judgment so people can turn to him and be saved. The flip side of that is that he allows evil and sin to continue until then. And that's why we see the atrocities carrying on in our world. You see, where is the true king is the most disturbing question to the human heart. 
because we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our lives, don't we? In every heart, there's a little King Herod that wants to rule. And it rises up, doesn't it, when there are, uh, when there are minor threats to our, our rule. It rises up to some degree. But Jesus claimed to be king over people's lives triggers deep resistance within them. See, if you want to be king of your life and Jesus says he's king of your life, then there's going to be conflict. Now, some people reject Jesus' rule by shaking their fist at God, loudly proclaiming there is no God, giving God the forks. Other people, well, they're more polite. They'll just ignore God. Just as rebellious, but more polite. And there are others that reject God, but still want to have some veneer of spirituality, of of morality. Thomas Nagel is a philosopher and he says this, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is this cosmic authority problem is not rare. At least he's honest. Tim Keller, a pastor in the United States, he says that this little Herod doesn't actually go away even when you become a Christian. Look at what he says. There is still a little King Herod inside you, even as a Christian. It means you have got to be far more intentional about Christian growth, about prayer and about accountability to other people to overcome your bad habits. You can't just glide through the Christian life. There is something in you that fights it. But despite the tears of the Bethlehem mothers, all is not lost. Because Jesus the Saviour has escaped Herod. And so the hope promised by God is about to be realised. In verse 19, we read, after Herod died, after Herod died. Now, the, the Jewish historian Josephus gives us an account of Herod's death, and it is a shocking account of his death. His death was an agonizing death. His symptoms were intense itching, intestinal distress, foul discharges, burning fever, convulsions, and maggot-infested gangrene. I've got a picture of that. No, I don't really. <laughs> now, now, I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. Right? I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. But it goes to show you that for all Herod's might and power, the one who plotted against God's Messiah, this king of Edom, who tried to kill the king of Israel, who tried to kill the Messiah, for all his might and power, in the end he died an ignominious death and is a mere blip on the pages of history. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at the Herods of this world, both the big Herods and the little Herods. Because all big Herods and little Herods will face God in judgment. 
We'll keep reading verse 19. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. God, remember, brought his son Israel out of Egypt. Now he brings his son Jesus out of Egypt. And if you read through Matthew, you'll see again and again that Jesus repeats the story of Israel. The word is recapitulates. He recapitulates the story of Israel. Why does he do that? Well, it's not attributed to coincidence. Jesus ultimately fulfills these biblical patterns of Israel and brings them their ultimate significance. He succeeds where Israel fails, right? Israel, Israel fails in the desert. Jesus succeeds against temptation in the desert. Throughout Matthew, you see that. And it's through Jesus' obedience that he lives a sinless life. And so when he dies on the cross, he can sacrifice his sinless life for our sinful humanity and he can give us his righteousness. That's why he repeats the history of Israel and you'll see it again and again through Matthew. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Archelaus's reputation for cruelty was greater than that even of his father Herod, if you can believe that. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So, again, divine intervention. He gets sent a, given a dream and he settles in the north in Nazareth where there was another Herod ruling but it was perceived he wouldn't be so much of a threat now Nazareth was a despised place it was the armpit of Israel those from the capital looked down their noses at anyone that lived in the backwaters of Nazareth and later on if you remember Christians were called the Nazarene sect which was a derogatory term like calling someone a redneck or a hick why did the king of kings come from the backwaters of Nazareth? Well, the prophets, remember, promised that, predicted that this king of kings would not come with the pomp and ceremony of an earthly king, but he would come as the suffering servant. And him coming from the backwaters of Nazareth, it tells us about the nature of God's salvation. You see, throughout Jesus' life, the disciples keep asking Jesus, when are you going to rise to power and save the world? And what did Jesus say? You don't understand. I must lose power and die in order to save the world. That's why at the climax of Jesus' life, he doesn't go straight to the throne. He goes first to the cross where he deals with your sin, my sin. He deals with the evil of the world. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you want to put your faith in Christ, today is the day to do it. Christ died to pay for your sins. It doesn't matter if you've been on the paid staff of hell. It doesn't matter if your life would leave a black mark on a piece of coal. 
doesn't matter what deep, dark secrets you have in your past. It doesn't matter how badly you've messed up. If you trust in Jesus' death for you, if you turn from your sin and you put Jesus on the throne of your life, you will be saved. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about salvation. We're not to make the same, make, the same mistake as Herod did. If the Son of God really was born in a manger as the King of Kings, then we really have lost the right to be in charge of our lives, haven't we? On your chair is a sheet of paper. It should be, I don't see one on every chair, but there should be one in arm's reach. If you could take it, it's got a little crown on the front and a blank on the back. If you could take one of those, it should be near enough to be able to grab it. If you turn to, oh, if you turn to the back, which is blank, you might want to take a pencil out. If I asked you to write down on this blank piece of paper how you have lived with Jesus as your king in the last year, 2022. If you had to write down how you've lived with Jesus as your king and how perhaps you failed to live with Jesus as your king, how would you go? What would it look like? For some of us, it would look great. I know some of us in this, in this church live with God as their king every day. For some of us, it wouldn't look so flash. But we've got an opportunity to turn that around. If you literally turn your piece of paper around, you'll see a crown there depicting the king. And I want to give you a couple of minutes just to write down a few things that you might want to do this year to serve Jesus as your king. And I want you to actually write it down and I want you to take it home with you and I want you to uh, reflect on it. I want you to add to it. I want you to keep yourself accountable. I want you to take it to Bible study and keep others accountable. How will you live with Jesus as your king? Because what does your king demand of you? Everything. And what will it cost you to follow your king? Your life. He is everything or he is nothing. And I want to ask, who is on the throne of your life? And so I, I do actually want to give you a minute or two to do that right now as uh, we finish up. I'll pray in a minute or so. I want you to jot down a few things, maybe large areas of your life, maybe there's a specific thing that you want to work on. We have an opportunity to turn things around because Christmas is about salvation. It's about forgiveness and it's about living with your past wiped clean, living with Jesus as your king. And it's a question I ask myself almost every day. Who is on the throne of my life? Is it me or is it the king of kings? Please take that with you 
and pray over it. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Christmas story. Father, I just pray for each one of us. Lord, the reality is we do have a little Herod that wants to rise up and take charge of our lives. And we need to be deliberate. We need to be intentional to quash that little Herod down. And Father, I just pray that we would put you, put the Lord Jesus as the king on, our, on the throne of our lives. What do you demand of us? Everything. What will it cost us to follow you? Our lives. You are everything. And we want to put you on the throne of our lives. For those of you who are here tonight and you haven't yet put Jesus on the throne of your life, you have not yet had your sins forgiven, come to the Lord tonight. The Lord will hear your prayer. It doesn't matter if you're life would leave a black mark on a piece of coal it doesn't matter what you've done the Lord Jesus will forgive it why don't you say a prayer to him right now Father I'm sorry for my sin I'm sorry for being on the throne of my life where you should be I now put you on the throne If you've prayed for that prayer for the first time, please come and see me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Let someone know.